You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Well, exams are still very much front and centre of the government's inbox right now. Labour's calling on Boris Johnson to return from holiday to deal with what he calls the what it calls the government's farcical handling of A-level grades. The Prime Minister's under pressure to intervene after almost 40% of A-level grades awarded in England were lower than teachers' predictions. The exam regulator Ofqual faced criticism over the statistical model it used to decide the grades and its following move to withdraw guidance on how to appeal. Now, the Shadow Education Secretary, Kate Green, says it's a disaster. There is this completely chaotic response to this crisis. Nobody's got a grip of it. We've said that the Prime Minister needs now to get off his holiday and come and take charge because it is young people who are being damaged by this farce and they absolutely don't deserve the shameful treatment that they're receiving. That's the Shadow Education Secretary. Well, this story is just running on and on. And now we're looking ahead to GCSE results, which drop in just a few days. The Prime Minister coming under pressure from people in his own party as well. Senior Tory MPs asking Johnson to delay that release. Uh, The Conservative MP Robert Halford, who chairs the Commons Education Committee, is saying that the same mistakes can't be made again. It is just a mess. It's got to be sorted out. We need to have the appeal system up and running over the next day or so, so that students know that they will get a fair crack of the whip if they feel that they have been penalised in terms of their grades. And that was the Conservative MP Robert Halfen, Chair of the Commons Education Committee. So what is the Prime Minister going to do? Well, joining us now is Joe Mays, Bloomberg's UK government reporter. Joe, uh, well, it's an interesting moment. Boris Johnson, in theory, at least, is uh, on holiday in Scotland, where apparently the midges are the worst they've ever been. Uh, He may even still think that perhaps is less unpleasant than what he might face if he were down in Westminster. Is there a chance that Gavin Williamson, the Education Secretary, could have to go? 
I think that you can't rule that out at this point because, as you were saying, this has become and is continues to be a massive political issue for this government. I think it has real cut through. It's something which affects so many people. I mean, your, your ordinary person who has children might not be particularly interested in politics. This affects them very directly, and there are lots of angry people out there, and probably crucially in conservative-held seats as well, middle-class parents who are very anxious and upset with how their children who've received these results have been treated. So it's a kind of issue where you might think that Boris Johnson might ask Gallup Willis to consider his position because of how poorly this has been handled in the eyes of the public. And I think Gavin Williamson will feel under a lot of pressure at this point in time. Whether he goes or not, we'll see. Boris Johnson and with Dominic Cummings as advisor have shown themselves to be fairly loyal to people who've shown loyalty to them in the past. So I think Boris Johnson won't want to get rid of Gavin Williams for that reason. But as we're seeing, if this issue continues, I think we might see him go. But but even if he doesn't go, there is so much pressure on a U-turn and it's what we saw in Scotland and that was a mess of its own creation and ended up with an apology and we saw it coming here and it wasn't done. Are we going to see that sort of U-turn, some sort of a change to the plan at least? Again, I, I think we might. And I guess the key question now is Thursday where we have GCSE results coming out again and even more students are affected by that. And there are commentators out today saying that this government really can't afford to simply use the same algorithm as it used the A-levels on Thursday because it would be seen to be simply repeating this exercise which has caused so much consternation and upset. So we might see some kind of U-turn. We might see the government say, oh, you know, we will go back and let children have the uh, people have the teachers predictions that might be something they could do as like a generous offer but then they'd be kind of going against all the arguments they've been making justifying the system about avoiding great inflation so whatever the government does now it will look bad but they might just take the decision which is let's go for the lesser evil which is let's just make parents and students happy and give them these results we'll have to see one to watch so the reason this is different, Joe, I mean, there was a fascinating comment from uh, Ruth Davidson, who, uh, of course, a very significant figure in Conservative politics north of the border in Scotland, uh, leads the party in Holyrood now, of course, saying this will absolutely be one of the things that even people who don't pay attention to politics will be all over because this is their child's future. I mean, is this really what makes this such a strong and, it seems, uh, universal issue? Yeah, I think definitely so. And uh, in addition to that, there's the expectations element of it, which is that students were given an expectation of what they were going to get with their results through their mock exams and through their teacher predictions. And so you're taking many, many people from that base and putting them down. So other countries like France, for example, have said, we're not going to do that. We're going to be generous towards students. We're going to give them, you know, we'll, we'll assess them on previous results in the year and we'll make sure they get that and no lower. And so the government has just create a situation where so many people have in their own eyes suffered and as you say so many people are affected because so many parents have kids in school and then crucially this will affect them for many years into the future because this is going to affect their employment prospects ability to go to university we've seen you know heartbreaking stories on social media of disadvantaged students who are in disadvantaged schools doing expecting to go to oxford and cambridge for example but then having their grades downgraded because of this algorithm and really case studies that really appeal to everybody as completely unjust i don't think a government can really afford for that to go on and but we've seen it on the news channels day after day since since, uh, since thursday and this is really quite damaging i think and Joe, what about reopening schools? Because it was something that Boris Johnson went in all guns blazing on last week. And now we've got this huge admin effort, essentially, for schools to appeal all of this. Could we then see it delaying 
this reopening that we're expecting to get next month and the Prime Minister has put so much weight on? I think that, that, that is a genuine concern, although my instinct is that the government will do absolutely everything it can to get schools open in September, just because of how important it is for the economy to reopen, because people aren't going to be willing to go back to work as this government wants them to do, if it's the case that they're still having to provide childcare and look after their kids at home because they're not at school. So I think that despite this administrative burden that you mentioned, I think they will try to do everything they can to get kids back in. But still, it's, again, it's another problem this government has to contend with in addition to all the others we've seen in recent weeks and months. Now, Joey, I mean, there's an interesting context to this because there does seem to be, and I mean, obviously the government is dealing with the crisis. They're the one who actually have to make the decisions. And yet they seem to be making quite a lot of uh, enemies in all sorts of areas where you wouldn't expect. I mean, they've made enemies in terms of obviously people holding in France for a start. That was a big thing the last few days. They're clearly uh, alienating quite a lot of parents now, and that may grow. Uh, and also, I suppose, uh, according to the IPPR, the Institute of Public Policy Research, when it comes to getting rid of the furlough, there's a good chance they might increase the number of permanently unemployed by the speed with which they get rid of the furlough. I mean, is there a sense that perhaps this government is either losing direction or perhaps doesn't seem to know how to move, both in order to deal with the crisis, but also to keep itself reasonably popular? I, I think you're right that there is a perception, which is perhaps growing, which, put frankly, might be one of slight incompetence in certain areas. I think what you would have to say in the defence of this government is that this is a pandemic scenario which no government has ever faced in living memory and therefore there has to be some kind of slack given to the government in this scenario. But nevertheless, voters will not forgive uh, actions which they see to be damaging their own livelihoods, as are the case with these very levels, as are the case of handling of quarantine policies, as are the case of handling of furlough. So I think that voters may not cut them as much slack as, as they would wish, but the, the caveat being, the Conservatives are still doing fairly well in the poll. They've suffered recently because of the A-level fiasco, but it is the case that there is still some core support there for them. So we're not seeing complete ebbing away here, but give it a few more weeks and months of perceived incompetence, I think we could see that shifting, and Labour under Keir Starmer might become more of a significant electoral force. Well, the other place where it looks like they're making enemies is within the press. I mean, what's been fascinating watch, to watch is the likes of the Mail and the Telegraph, these traditionally right-leaning papers going all out against the Tories. I mean, if you look at the Mail's leaders today, just when you thought the A-levels fiasco couldn't get any worse, it managed to plumb new depths of chaos and incompetence. Some pretty damning language there. I mean, how much can we read into that when we're talking about uh, the Tory party, how they're faring and how perception might change? Yeah, I think you're right. So that is a very worrying sign for Conservatives, given how the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday tend to really speak for Middle England, the kind of core Conservatives vote. So if it's the case that they are turning against you, that is worrying. I mean, of course, we are you know, several years away from a future election, so it's far off and many, many, much time to kind of recover. But I think it is certainly concerning, and they'd want to turn that around. And that's why, as I was saying with the Williamson scenario, that might be tempting Johnson to take some kind of action against him, because if you're losing the mail, that's a, an early, early warning. And we've also seen the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, be much more effective himself in getting his own viewpoint and position into those key, essentially conservative newspapers. So again, the Labour Party has become more strategic, it seems, in recent weeks, in targeting their messaging and, 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 and their, their, their voter drive. So that, again, is a, a sign which should be perhaps worrying to conservatives. And Joe, the interesting point is this week... Brexit resurfaces as well. This was a cabinet largely chosen on its promises or its loyalty over Brexit, and Brexit talks resume. 
is there a risk that if that goes really badly as well, this could be yet another thing to put on the list of mistakes by the government at the moment? Yeah, I think there's two things there, which is, firstly, as you're right, if no deal can be agreed in September, October, as the government wishes, that will be damaging for, for this Conservative government. But also, even if they do get a deal, there's a massive logistical challenge of coping with new barriers to trade with the European Union, which will occur even if there is a free trade agreement. Because outside the single market, outside the customs union, there are new non-tariff barriers, like customs declarations and the need for controls at the border, which you cannot obviate with a free trade agreement. So that challenge is coming no matter what. So we know yeah. that's going to be added to the burden the government faces in education, on the virus and so on. So it could be a real crunch these next few months for the government um, and, and not getting a deal at all will make it even worse. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. And we start with Public Health England, that body that we've been talking about so much throughout the coronavirus pandemic. The government's scrapping it and replacing it with a new body that's focused on protecting the country from pandemics. This all comes from a Telegraph report that hasn't been denied by the government yet. It says the announcement is tabled for this week. There's a new organisation to replace it that's expected to be called the National Institute for Health protection so etch that one onto your brain and it's modeled on germany's robert koch institute and uh, of course there have been rumors for a long time of phe's demise demise uh ministers reportedly unhappy about the way the body has responded to the pandemic so not a massive surprise but a shift in the way that the government and its quangos and all the other bodies around it are responding to the pandemic yeah and the answer with the quangos you've always got to have a pronounceable name and i'm not sure that national institute for health protection the acronym NIFLEAF. That doesn't quite work for me. Anyway, one that's very easy to trip off the tongue is that of the think tank IPPR. Now, they have been talking about the impact of what happens when the furlough gets turned off. The Chancellor has been warning, has been warned, in fact, by them that two million jobs, two million viable jobs are at risk if the furlough ends too early. They say those workers are in roles that would be sustainable if help were extended into the next year. The IPPR recommends a follow-on scheme after furlough ends in October to support those jobs until March of next year. Yeah, big debate and pressure from other parties on the Tories to extend that furlough as we get closer and closer to the October deadline. It's it's starting to get um, tapered now, isn't it, in August? So it's already being affected. Uh, But anyway, let's get on to uh, TikTok. 
Trade Secretary Liz Truss leading the opposition to the app's plan to move its HQ to London. This is in today's Guardian. The paper saying that Truss is concerned about some of the demands that are being made by ByteDance, which is the parent company of the app. It wants, among other things, a public statement of support from a senior minister that's going to be welcome in the long term so that we don't get another repeat of what happened with Huawei, that initially they're allowed in and then they're thrown out. Very expensive, of course, for a company to have that done to it. Uh, But that sets Truss up with a potential clash with number 10, which has generally been supportive of having TikTok come to London. So a big intervention, I suppose, from a cabinet secretary on this issue. Yeah, it all falls into the problem between a lot of the Tory backbenchers, many of whom are involved in the China Research Group, who are very opposed to what they see as China getting its claws into the UK economy, uh, whereas number 10, I think, still thinks it's a good bet for an economic future. Now, finally, housing. Housing market madness. The UK housing sales hit their highest level in more than a decade last month. Rightmove, the property website, said that prices rose at their fastest annual rate since the aftermath of the Brexit referendum in 20. The frenzy's been fuelled largely by a stamp duty holiday, which has meant the market isn't experiencing the usual summer slowdown. Yeah, I don't think there's been anything usual about the housing market or indeed anything else this year. Uh, But one thing that is an everlasting constant is Brexit. Negotiators vowing to stand firm, the UK ones, in the latest round of trade talks. They start in Brussels this week. Sources say this team aren't going to accept any deal that requires alignment with EU rules, and that includes fishing rights. So that gives us some idea as to how they're going to approach this latest round, pretty similar to the last lot by the sounds of it. Uh, But meanwhile, the EU is warned about banks, British banks, and possible delays with access to the whole of the bloc's financial markets. This is coming from a Financial Times report, which cites Valdis Dombrovskis, who's the European Commission's Executive Vice President for Economic Policy. It says that UK firms might have to wait even after the transition period, for this pan-EU access right because of the bloc's own regulations, which are in flux. So it's sort of unrelated to Brexit in a sense, but it gives you an idea of of the bigger rift between the UK and the EU. And obviously that has a huge impact on the city if they have to wait for these sorts of rights. Well, let's bring in uh, Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University and Deputy Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. Often our guide, Tim, of course, in these sort of areas. So walk us through it. Now, two months ago, Boris Johnson said they're going to put a tiger in the tank to revitalise Brexit talks. Um, Are these revitalised talks, would you say? Not really. Um, We've already seen some of the deadlines uh, that they set for themselves earlier on Uh, get missed. So they're almost running to catch up now. There's no sense in which they kind of accelerated things. And, uh, you know, there's now a little bit more time to do stuff. Actually, uh, to be honest, uh, the time's getting tighter and tighter as things go on. Uh, So, I mean, Tim, how much of this is to do with coronavirus? I feel like that's an excuse for a lot of things. And sometimes it's valid. Sometimes maybe it's not. Well, I mean, I think clearly the fact that negotiators haven't um, been able to meet as much as they would have hoped to in normal times face-to-face has made a difference. But I think, to be honest, the delay in the talks is more to do with the fact that the two sides simply can't agree on some very, very important issues. You already put your finger on um, a couple of them. Um, the most obvious ones are fishing, which may seem a little ridiculous given the uh, contribution to the uh, the bloc's GDP and the UK's GDP of that particular industry. Uh, but symbolically, it's very important. And then, of course, there is this issue of the level playing field um, to which the UK 
as far as the EU are concerned, had kind of signed up to, but which now the UK is objecting to, suggesting that it can't, as an independent country, be held to the kind of standards on labour and the environment, etc., that EU member states are themselves held to. So it's those two things in particular, I think, that are uh, holding up talks. Uh, And also possibly the belief... I suspect mistaken on the part of the UK that somehow uh, everything will always get settled at the last minute uh, in these negotiations and they have to go to the wire in order for uh, both sides to make the compromises that they need to make. Well, let's let's dig into that because that is a very interesting point. Because you constantly hear the refrain, "Oh, it'll you know this is the way the EU works." They always pull something out of the uh, bottom drawer at the very last minute. But do you get a sense, Tim, on either side that there is a real wish or even desire to get a deal? I mean, are both sides perhaps relaxed about not getting a deal? I don't think that is the case, actually. I, I and I, I'm sure that rationally it makes sense for both sides for there to be a deal. I mean, whether, of course, rationality enters into Brexit is a question that we could spend hours debating. But if you look at it from the point of view both of the UK and the EU, it makes far more sense for some kind of deal to be done rather than the kind of disruptive outcome that would occur if no free trade deal of any kind occurs before uh, the end of the year. I I still get the feeling that ultimately there will be some kind of deal there simply because the consequences of not doing one, particularly on top of COVID-19, particularly indeed for the UK government, are so serious that that I think it it just doesn't make any rational political sense or even the electoral political sense for uh, the the government of this country anyway to, to leave without one. So, I mean, what are they waiting for then? If we don't think that either side really wants a no deal or could handle a no deal and the there's nothing they can agree on at the moment, but they're not going to go down to the wire, what lies ahead for the next few months? Well, uh, I mean, what they can do, of course, there are all sorts of other bits and pieces apart from those two things which they can try and work on as, as they go. Um, but, I, I mean, I, I still think there is this... Um, a perception on the part of the UK government that it's not until, you know, 11.59 that uh, the the EU will make any concessions. I, I'm, I'm predicting, anyway, that the UK in the end will fold somewhat on, um, on level playing field. I, I just don't think that the EU is going to give as much as the UK want on that. I think the EU has already given something on dispute resolution. So the UK was very concerned about having to accept rulings of the European Court of Justice on on any kind of dispute resolution uh, procedure. The the, EU has already given way, I think, on that. Uh, So I think the UK is going to have to give way in in some senses on signing up to Labour standards. Now, whether they do that through some kind of promise, and it will have to be some kind of binding promise, and that's probably the issue on non-regression. In other words, you know, we'll keep up with you and we won't go backwards. Uh, or whether there will be some other way of doing it, who knows. But it, it just doesn't really, I think, make any sense for the UK to, to leave without any kind of uh, deal at all. And to be honest, I think the UK's insistence that somehow it must be treated like any other country, Canada is always the one that's uh, quoted by uh, UK ministers, is... 
um, you know, is unconvincing in the sense that the UK is clearly on the EU's doorstep. It has uh, an economy which is much more integrated into the EU. And clearly it would be in a position to, as the EU see it, unfairly undercut uh, EU producers were it to be allowed to um, move away from some of those standards. So I, I think the UK is just going to have to accept reality. And we do, of course, have the precedent of the withdrawal agreement when Boris Johnson, at the last minute, essentially uh, surrendered and gave in to um, people who said that the, uh, the um, border would have to be drawn down the Irish Sea rather than across the uh, island of Ireland. Uh, and he was able to spin that surrender as some kind of victory. And I'm sure that Boris Johnson is still capable of doing that. Tim, very briefly, and just as a as a kind of pinning you down a bit, which is deeply unfair, you think we'll enter 2021 with something agreed between the EU and the UK that amounts to a deal? Yes, I do. I mean, I still think that it makes rational sense for the two sides to uh, to do a deal rather than not do a deal. Of course, as I say, rationality doesn't always play its part in Brexit, but I think the stakes are so high for the UK in particular that we will probably get some kind of deal. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.